So let's, uh, let's dive into the Word of God this morning if we can, and I hope that you brought a copy of God's Word with you today. If so, then I want you to turn to uh, the New Testament book of James, chapter 2. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you probably have a bookmark or, a, or an old bulletin that's there already. We've been going on a journey through this very pre- powerful and practical letter, and this is the fifth week that we've been in there. Today we're going to be looking at the subject of what good is your faith? And we're, we're talking about what it means to have authentic faith in a world full of counterfeit faiths. What it means to have authentic, real, genuine faith in Christ and what that looks like. And that's what James does in this book. He just gives us all this practical advice about faith. And really the passage we're looking at today in James chapter 2 is kind of the central argument that he's making throughout the whole book. He's talking about how faith is to be visible, that faith is to, is to have some value to it. And so we're going to be talking about what good is your faith. The majority of people in our world say they have faith when it comes to religious belief. The vast majority of people in our Western culture in the United States of America, but even around the world, all have some sort of religious faith. Religious people are often described by the moniker people of faith. When the secular culture is talking about Christians, but not just Christians, they might be talking about Jews, or they might be talking about Muslims, or they might be talking about Mormons or or Jehovah's Witnesses, and they just kind of use that moniker, people of faith. Houses of worship are often called houses of faith, meaning that those are places where people of religious faith gather. So the reality is that the vast majority of people have faith. The real question that we need to be addressing is not whether or not somebody has faith or religious belief, but whether or not that faith is true and real, whether or not that faith is authentic, whether it is a living faith. Because if you have faith in the wrong thing, it doesn't matter how sincere, how genuine, or how devoted you are. If your faith is misplaced... If your faith is not in something that is true, then at the end of the day, it's not going to do you any good. And so we want to talk as Christians about how we don't just have faith, we don't just have religious belief, but how we have genuine, authentic faith. And what you're going to hear me say today several times is this, what James is telling us in this whole letter, but especially in the passage we're going to look at today, is that professing, what you, professing that you believe in Jesus is easy to do, but proving that you belong to Jesus is a completely different matter. Professing that you believe in Jesus is easy for anyone to do, but proving that you belong to Jesus is something else. And one of the questions that we often wrestle with in the church is what do we do when someone has given verbal affirmation to the truths of Christianity but they never seem to experience a measurable change of heart or behavior. What do we do with people that say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but but there's no tangible evidence in their life of real saving faith in Christ? What do we do with someone in the church or in our family who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I believe in the Bible, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and yet there's nothing there that, that would prove that. Professing you have faith in Jesus is easy. Proving it is a different matter. Steve Farrar passed away just a couple of weeks ago. Many of you probably saw that. Steve was, a, was an incredible guy, especially in the area of writing to issues that men face. And Steve wrote a book years ago, 20 years ago, that had a profound impact on me called Finishing Strong. And in that book, Steve Farrar tells the story 
1945 of three young evangelists who were the most gifted, exceptional evangelists of their day who were, who were being brought up in things such as Young Life and other parachurch ministries. They were, they were traveling the country preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and God was doing an amazing work through them of revival. The three young men were Bron Clifford, Chuck Templeton, and a young man by the name of Billy Graham. And they were, ironically, most people at that time believed that Billy Graham was the least exceptional of the three. Most people believe that Bron Clifford and Chuck Templeton were by far the most gifted of, 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 the, of the group and would have the longest impact for Christ. That was in 1945. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton speak, said, Chuck Templeton is the most gifted, talented young man in America today for preaching the gospel. However, You've never heard of Bron Clifford or Chuck Templeton, but you've heard of Billy Graham. Why? Well, just five years later, by 1950, Chuck Templeton, who was, who was, who was a powerful evangelist, left the ministry to begin a career in radio broadcasting and newspaper writing. He began to struggle with issues of faith and later on claimed himself to be an agnostic, that he no longer believed in Christ and he no longer believed in the gospel and died, as far as we know, lost. Bron Clifford, by, by contrast, a few years later eventually left his wife and began a downward spiral into alcoholism. He became an alcoholic and in 1945 he died penniless in a hotel room in Amarillo, Texas from cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 35. Professing that you believe in Jesus is easy to do, but proving that you belong to Jesus is a completely different matter. The other matter that we need to address when it comes to a person of faith is the issue of whether that faith that they have empowers them to live a substantially different life than before they professed faith in Christ. In Christian vernacular, we ask it this way. We say, does a person's faith produce any spiritual fruit or not? Do they, does it produce anything in them that gives evidence of their faith in Christ? Are they different now than they were before they supposedly said, yes, I believe in Jesus? Does a person's professed faith in Christ result in a progressively transformed life? over time where sinful habits and sinful affections are systematically replaced with godly affections and godly attitudes and choices that are in alignment with the gospel and the word of God. And here in this passage today, we begin to see the tension between genuine saving faith, which we know is given by the grace of God alone. Faith in Christ is given by God's grace Salvation comes completely by His grace. It is, it is not secured in any way by any good works that we do. We understand that. That's the foundation of our belief as, as biblical Christians, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We are not saved by our good works. We're not saved by the record of our church attendance. We're not saved by the, by the consistency of our tithing. We're not saved by, the, by how often we read the Bible. We're not saved by how many things we do for other people. We are saved completely by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, 
But we see the tension between genuine saving faith and good works, which are the evidence of a redeemed heart. And it's not just something that we wrestle with in the 21st century. It's something that they wrestled with in the 1st century. The early Christians were primarily Jews who had been immersed in an empty religious system whereby one's public acts of faith secured for them the forgiveness of God. In many of the first century Judaism, people were saved because they went to the temple to pray. They went to the temple to offer sacrifices. They did these public acts of, 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 of piety. And because they did those things, their, their, their salvation was immersed in whether or not they kept the law and whether or not they kept the customs and the sacrifices. And many of these uh, Jewish people had come out of a strict legalistic system which defined what a good and faithful Jew looked like. And then Jesus comes on the scene preaching the kingdom of God. He, he goes to the cross. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected. And after he is resurrected, thousands of these Jews come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that salvation didn't come through the sacrifices. Salvation came through Jesus. But the Jewish people continue to struggle with reconciling their Jewish heritage and the customs and the commandments of the Bible with Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus who didn't keep these same customs. And this is why we see this in the book of Galatians and, and in the book of Colossians and in several other books, in the book of Romans. We see this tension between Jews who were trying to reconcile how do we do the works that glorify God and when those works don't save us. And Paul comes on the scene and Paul makes it abundantly clear in his writings that we are saved completely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Galatians 2, 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, even though we are Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So the New Testament makes it very clear that we are justified by our faith in Jesus alone. And then we come to this passage in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, where James at least on the surface, seems to be seeing something different than the Apostle Paul. James says, literally, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. How do, we, how do we reconcile Paul, who says that we are justified not through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, with James, who says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? It seems like they're saying something different, but they're not. They're saying that they're the very same thing, and we're going to unpack that here in just a second. I want you to read with me James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26, as we think about what good is your faith. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As I said before, there's nothing here in what James says that is in conflict with anything that Paul wrote or anything that Jesus or the other apostles said. As a matter of fact, one of the principles of biblical interpretation is that we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, that we understand that the Bible does not contradict itself, that the Bible is grounded as the Word of God on a God who does not change, a God who is always truthful, a God who always says things right and true. And so you won't see things in the Bible that are in conflict with one another. If you see something that seems like a seeming conflict, the problem is not in what the Bible says. The problem is in how we are understanding it. And we need to dig a little bit deeper. James's point in James chapter 2 is very simple. James says, real faith works. Real faith works. Real faith is active faith. Real saving faith in Christ is publicly evident faith. Real faith doesn't just profess belief in Christ, it proves belief in Christ. Professing you believe in Jesus is easy to do, but proving you belong to Jesus is something completely different. And so I'm going to kind of summarize this as one central truth, as I often do in these passages, and then we're going to break this apart this morning. The, the central argument that James is making in James chapter 2 is this, that genuine Christians must reject dead religious faith that is merely professed. That you're just saying you're a Christian. And instead, we must pursue a living faith that is demonstrated by the fruit of our lives each day. I'll give you a second to write that down. Genuine Christians must reject in all forms dead religious faith that is merely professed with our mouth. And instead... We must pursue a living faith in Christ that is demonstrated by the fruit of our lives, the public evidence of our faith each and every day. In these verses, James describes for us as readers two types of faith, dead faith and living faith. And everyone in the church has one of these two types of religious faith. Every person came in here this morning as a person of faith. You came here this morning because there's something in you that recognizes that it's right and true to be in a house of God, worshiping with God's people on Sunday morning. There's something about that that is just right. We were created and most of us redeemed for that purpose, to gather together as the body of Christ collectively to worship our Savior. And most people, even people who aren't Christians, inherently understand that there's just something right about going to church on Sunday, that it's the right thing that most of us should do. So every person came in here this morning as an exercise in some sort of faith. But the reality is that every person came in here this morning and you have one of two types of faith. You either came in here this morning with a living faith in Christ 
or you came in here this morning with a dead faith. And the difference between those two is staggering. And the consequences of having the wrong one are deadly and eternal. So my prayer for you this morning is that as you leave this morning, if you came in here with a dead faith, you would find here this morning the power of the gospel and that you would leave here with a living faith in Christ. So let me talk to you about these two faiths this morning. The first, as we see, is the danger of dead faith. The danger of dead faith. It's really Paul's or James's central argument throughout James chapter 2. He begins it at the first part of James chapter 2 last week when we looked at the, the description of partiality. We have to understand that this section that we're looking at flows directly out of last week's passage where James commanded us as Christians to have an impartial faith that doesn't show things such as prejudice or favoritism or discrimination to people solely on the basis of judging their external appearance. Those discriminatory attitudes that people often display are not compatible with the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And so he's giving us an example of of dead faith at the beginning part of James chapter 2 when he talks about the sin of partiality. And then he goes into a, a, a deeper warning of it in verses 14 through 20. Let's read it again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We'll stop there. We can't understand James's argument in verse 14 without understanding that the way that we treat others, the way that we publicly relate to other people that God places in our path, the way we treat others is fruit or evidence about what really is in control of our hearts. That's why James begins this section by saying, what good is it? What good is it is a rhetorical question suggesting that the thing that James is about to discuss has, is something that has no value, it is useless, it is worthless. He, he uses the word dead. Now, what is that that James says has no value in our life? It is the claim of someone to have faith or belief in God, but lack any sense of visible demonstration of that faith through good works that glorify God and benefit others. He says that kind of faith is dead. It is dead faith. Dead faith is a professed belief in Christ without any presence of actual spiritual life. There's no evidence. In his commentary on the, on the letter of James, a professor by the name of David Doriani tells of a meeting one time he had on the road with a truck driver, and he shared the gospel with this truck driver. After witnessing to the man, the truck driver affirmed that he believed in Jesus Christ, that he believed Jesus to be the Son of God, and that he believed that Jesus died on the cross to forgive him of his sin and that Jesus rose again. He affirmed everything that Professor Doriani had told him about the gospel. The problem for this man, though, he confessed, was his obstacle to, to really being a Christian was that he was a married man. But as a truck driver, the, the, the difficulty of the road meant that being out many times, he, he, he had difficulty being faithful to his wife. He had several girlfriends on the road that he recognized that if he wanted to be a Christian and follow Jesus, he would have to give up the girlfriends 
in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's an example of dead faith. That's an example of somebody who would say, I have faith in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he died on the cross and rose again. But there's, actually, there's no evidence whatsoever in that person's life of a redeemed or transformed heart. There's three dangers that dead faith presents. The first of those is that dead faith will make false, self-deceptive claims about personal salvation. Dead faith will make false and even self-deceptive claims about someone's personal salvation. James says, what good, is it, what good is it if someone says? And it's interesting, he uses this phrase, if someone says. The emphasis is on the word says. It's about a personal faith claim. But James does not suppose that this alleged confessor actually possesses the faith that they profess to have. This is a person who says, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I have faith in Him. And the problem is that, especially in Western culture, it's far too easy to profess something verbally with our lips that isn't true internally in our hearts. You've seen this. We've all seen it. And some of us have done it many times. We profess things about the Bible, we profess things about Jesus, we've We've said that we affirm things the Bible says is true, but we go out and live lives that are completely contrary to what we say we believe. We've all done it. And the revivalistic culture of evangelicalism in the West for 150 years has made it entirely too easy for people to claim salvation and identification with Jesus without having any real evidence of actual belief in the gospel or any spiritual transformation in their lives. We have people all the time that say, I know I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I'm a member at Central Park Baptist Church. I walked in the aisle when I was a kid. I was at a Bible school and I, I, I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Savior and I got baptized. It's the reason why we have overinflated church roles across evangelicalism. It's the reason why we have over 15 million Southern Baptists who, who claim to, to be a member of a Southern Baptist church and yet about 40% of them have anything to do with attending church or, or, or walking with Christ on a daily basis. We have hundreds of millions of professed Christians in Western culture today, but the majority of them seldom, if ever, show up in a New Testament church on Sunday to worship the Lord. It's why divorce rates among professed evangelical Christians is practically the same as divorce rates among the secular culture. It's why statistically professed Christians in Western culture are just as likely to engage in morally questionable activities such as premarital or extramarital sex. They're more likely to view pornography, to be publicly intoxicated, or to use unscrupulous business practices as those who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. When you study the practical lives of those who profess to be Christians in Western culture, and you put those things alongside people who don't profess faith in Christ, it's almost identical. And that's because... We've made it far too easy in Western culture, in a revivalistic culture, to profess you have faith in Christ because you jump through some spiritual religious hoops <coughs> when in actuality there's no evidence of Christ in you whatsoever. All that is needed in most churches is for someone to come forward and express some sorrow for some actions that they've done in the past parrot some religious words in a prayer and then request membership in the church and be baptized. 
And we give people spiritual hoops to jump through without actually confirming their understanding or belief in the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And James says, what good is it? What good is it for someone to say they have faith, but they have no works that prove it? And he's talking about people who have false, self-deceptive claims about their salvation. Dead faith makes false claims about one's personal salvation. But not only that, dead faith does nothing to benefit anyone ever. It does nothing to benefit anyone ever. It doesn't benefit the person who makes the faith claim, and it really doesn't do anything to benefit anyone else in the process. James goes further in verses 15 through 16, talking about this, this professed believer who comes across somebody who is in physical need. He actually describes the person as a brother or sister in Christ. This is a fellow Christian. And he says, what good does it do for this, for this person to come across a person who is lacking clothing and food? And to say to the person, be blessed, be warm, and be filled. Greetings, brother. I I hope that you find food and clothing. I'm, I'm praying for you that you'll find those things. He says, what good does it do if all of that is just verbal and you do nothing to help the person in the process? He returns back to the example that we looked at last week of this poor man in verses 3 through 6 who showed up at church and was shown dishonor and put over in the corner while the rich man who shows up at church is given the seat of honor. And in this particular case, the the Christian comes across this poor man and he he sees the poor man's desperate condition, but, but his response is nothing more than an insincere greeting and best wishes. The Christian expresses public religiosity without actually doing anything to help the destitute person that God has placed before them. He doesn't do anything to help meet the person's need. And the problem with dead religious faith is that dead religious faith does not want to immerse itself in the physical and spiritual hurt and needs of this world. Dead religious faith is too busy being focused on self. It's too busy hiding a self-centered heart behind the veil of spiritual piety to ever really see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ. There's simply too much self in this picture to make room for others. And so dead religious faith does nothing to benefit anyone ever. But thirdly, dead religious faith professes shallow religious conviction. Dead faith is dangerous because it professes conviction, but the religious conviction that it professes is is shallow. James turns in verses 18 through 19 to an objection that that this supposed Christian might raise. And the Christian in this case says, you have faith and I have works. And what is he talking about here? In other words, the objector is raising the question, aren't faith and works just two separate yet equally valid spiritual traits? In other words, some people are personal and private and they have faith. And other people are public and, 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 and more outgoing and they have works. Isn't, at the end of the day, isn't it all the same thing? Some people have faith, some people have works, but aren't they both equally valid? James is speaking about people in dead faith who live their lives with shallow religious conviction. They live compartmentalized spiritual lives with spiritual boxes where their faith in God is little more than something that is designed to ease their personal conscience, and yet it does nothing to affect their personal conviction. 
We have a significant population in the evangelical church and Western culture that does exactly what James says here. They have personal faith, but they have no real spiritual convictions about what's wrong in this world or the responsibility of Christians to change the world with the gospel. They live their lives with compartmentalized spiritual boxes where they say, if I check enough of these religious boxes, I can feel good about my faith in Christ. But when it comes to engaging the world with religious conviction, they do nothing. When it comes to being salt and light in the world, they have lost their salt and they have hidden their light under a basket. And they never express personal conviction in a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, if you say you have faith, show me how you have faith apart from your works. Show me. This word, this word show means to, to make something visible. It means to, to demonstrate visibly what you say is true personally. And he says, if you say you have faith, then prove it. Show me you have faith. Because professed faith is easy. Anybody can profess belief in Christ. Show me that you have faith in Christ. What do you have that demonstrates that God has transformed your heart and changed you? That you are no longer what you were, that you're no longer an old creature, but God has made something new. James says, or Jesus said the very same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. In Matthew 7, he was warning his disciples and he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every fruit that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. James is not saying anything different than Jesus said. Jesus said, beware of people who would, who would make self-professed claims about faith in Christ, but inwardly they are nothing more than self-deceived people who have no evidence of it whatsoever. And every person that's in this room today, you're either a bad spiritual tree or a good spiritual tree. And the way that you understand and the way that others know is that bad spiritual trees bear bad fruit and good spiritual trees bear good fruit. It's the nature of healthy living organisms to bear fruit. And the fruit is the external evidence of something that is true internally. You see, the real problem with dead faith is not only that it's dangerous, but the real problem with dead faith is that it is damning. Dead faith is insufficient to save anyone. And if you live your life with just a self-professed faith in Christ, but no real tangible evidence of that, then at the end of the day, it's not going to be sufficient enough to get you into God's presence. And so we see in the first part the danger of dead faith, but then we see... In the second part of James's letter, the power of living faith. The power of living faith. Beginning in verse 21, James contrasts the problem of dead faith with the example of some biblical people who displayed a real, living, actual, saving faith. And he points to two very familiar Old Testament characters. We, we believe that James was writing to Jewish Christians, and so he goes to something they would be very familiar with. 
and he talks about two, two Old Testament characters, Abraham and Rahab. So let's look at what he says beginning in verse 21. Was not our Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. He says God's, Abraham's faith that was real was completed and demonstrated by the work that he did there with Isaac. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as faith apart from the spirit, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In contrast to dead faith, living faith does something else. In contrast to dead faith that makes false to self-deceptive claims about personal salvation, living faith proves salvation by righteous action. Living faith, real faith, authentic faith proves someone's salvation by righteous action. James says that Abraham was justified by his works when he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. Now most of you in here have been coming to church most of your life. You're probably very familiar with the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's found in Genesis chapter 20. And you know that God had promised to Abraham an heir. Abraham was old. He was 75 years old when God came to him and made a promise to him and said, even though you and your wife are barren and have no children, I'm going to give you an heir in your old age. And through that heir, I will bring up a great and mighty nation. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 12, that God believed the word, or Abraham believed the word of God. He believed God's promise, even though there was no evidence of it whatsoever. He said, God, if you brought me this far and you say that you're going to give me a son, even though I don't know how it's going to happen, I believe you. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He became a righteous man before God because of his faith in God's promise. But then we know later on, 25 years later, when God fulfills that promise, God tells Abraham to take that son up on the mountain and to sacrifice him. I want you to take that son that you love, that boy, I want you to take him up on the mountain, I want you to lay him on an altar, and I want you to drive a knife through his heart, and I want you to give that son to me as a sacrifice. And the Bible says that Abraham did exactly what God told him to. And he had faith that God would bring his son back no matter what happened. He knew God's promise and he had faith in God's promise that even if he offered Isaac as a sacrifice, that God would bring him back or he would provide another sacrifice. Now this word justified, when, when James says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, this word justified sounds very familiar and sometimes causes confusion. Because we looked and saw Paul say that Abraham, in, in, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that Abraham was not justified by works, and James says that Abraham was justified by works. So how do, we, how do we reconcile those two things? Well, here's the key. To understand what James is saying, we need to understand that the word justification or justified in the New Testament has two different meanings with regards to salvation. The first meaning of the word justified is a legal and forensic term in which the word justification means to declare the innocent not guilty. To declare the guilty not guilty. The first idea is it's a, it's a declaration by God the righteous judge 
that the one who stands guilty before him has been declared not guilty on the basis of the righteousness of someone else, in this case, Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's primary use of the word justify in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 4 when he's talking about Abraham. When he says that Abraham was not justified by his works, he's saying Abraham was not declared innocent because of his works. And in this particular use of the word, we are justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ alone because God declares a sinner like you and me not guilty before him because of our personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We are justified before God because of our faith, not because of anything that we do. We are declared righteous. We are declared not guilty before Him. That's the first use of the word justify. The second use of the word justify in the Bible means to vindicate or to prove one's righteousness. And that's the use of James in James chapter 2. It's to vindicate or prove something that God has already said about that person. And in this particular case, it means that when Abraham went to give up Isaac on the altar, his righteousness before God was vindicated publicly when he agreed to sacrifice Isaac. He demonstrated the proof of his righteous standing before God by his actions. And it's important for us to remember That Abraham was declared righteous before God in Genesis chapter 12 when he believed in God's promise. But he proved his righteousness before God in Genesis chapter 20 when he took Isaac on the mountain to sacrifice him. And in the same way as Christians, we prove our faith in God and we prove our righteousness before God when our lives are followed through in righteous actions before God. When we do good and righteous works that give glory to God and benefit others, which comes to the second thing about living faith. In contrast to to dead faith that does nothing to benefit anyone ever, living faith works actively to aid others, even at great personal cost. Living faith works to aid others, to benefit others, even at personal cost. The second example that... James uses as the example of Rahab. And you'll remember the story of Rahab. It takes place in the book of Joshua. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho who who had heard what God was doing, this, this God of the Israelites. They had heard the mighty works that this God had done when he had defeated God's enemies in, in the wilderness. And they heard about how this God had, had stopped the river to allow his people to cross over into Canaan. She had heard the mighty works of this God and she began to have more faith in the God of Israelites than she had fear of the men in her city. And so when these spies came to her city, she saw them and she agreed to hide those spies when the city officials came looking for them to to capture them and to to kill them for spying out the land. She hid those spies in, in the roof of her house And when she did, she asked them to remember her and her family when they came. And the Bible tells us that Rahab expressed faith. A pagan woman expressed faith in the God of Israel because she had heard the mighty works that God had done. And the Bible tells us that Rahab was justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She was justified because the faith that she had come of the God that she had only heard of externally, the faith that she had in that God 
was demonstrated when she hid the spies, when she hid God's people. Real, genuine, living faith is faith that is moved to help and aid others even when it comes at great personal cost to oneself. That's what James says in the first part there. Real faith doesn't just wish someone well when they lack basic necessities. Real faith doesn't say, I'm sorry, brother, I'll pray for you. Real faith sacrifices one's personal comfort and convenience to demonstrate the gospel to a world of great personal need. Genuine, authentic, living faith is never content to just show up at church and check a religious box and to be satisfied going home the same way before we came in. Living faith isn't content to just hear spiritual truth. James says, don't just be hearers of the word, be what? Be doers of the word. Living faith wants to do what God says. It wants to put religious truth into action. Living faith is not content to hear about a world of 8 billion people who don't know Jesus and say, well, good luck, I hope someone tells them about God. Living faith says, I may not be able to go right now, but I'm able to pray. And I'm able to sacrifice so that those who can go will have what they need to tell others about Jesus. That's living faith. Living faith is not content to build up our resources in order to serve our comfort and convenience when there's a world of genuine physical and spiritual need. It's not content to show the majority of people in our neighborhoods Uh, to know that the majority of people in our neighborhoods and city are lost and without Jesus, and that if someone doesn't tell them about Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell apart from God. Living faith isn't content to go, well, I hope that somebody tells them about Jesus. Living faith works actively to aid others, even at the cost of our comfort and our convenience. But then thirdly and finally, living faith publicly expresses genuine gospel conviction. Unlike dead faith, which expresses shallow conviction, living faith expresses genuine gospel conviction. James says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Now think about what he says there. He says, the body apart from the spirit cannot live. In other words, James says, what gives a person life is not the respiratory, circular, and nervous systems inside of us. When we die, those systems still remain. They just stop functioning. But what gives a person life is not our respiratory and our circular and our nervous system. What gives a person life is the spirit of that person living inside of them. And the Bible tells us that one day the spirit inside of us will depart and be separated from these organs and these nerves in our body. And that person, we, will be dead. And just like you cannot separate a body from the Spirit and still have life, you cannot separate biblical faith and genuine good works and still have the gospel. You cannot separate faith from works and have anything that can give anybody genuine spiritual life. Unlike dead faith that settles for shallow religious conviction, authentic living faith publicly expresses genuine conviction because living faith understands that you cannot genuinely trust the gospel and not be convicted of the truth of God's word. And you cannot encounter a world that doesn't know God's word and be content to keep it to yourself. People who have experienced the power of transforming faith understand that that God's values in this world are worth living for and fighting for. 
I want us to take us back in closing to the central truth that we began today, which is this, that genuine Christians must reject dead religious faith that is merely professed, and instead we must pursue a living faith that is demonstrated by the fruit of our lives each day. Professing that you believe in Jesus is easy. Proving that you belong to Jesus is something entirely different. What good is your professed faith? Is the faith that you profess a living faith or a dead faith? Is it a faith that is proven by good works that demonstrate a heart that's been changed by Christ? Or is your faith little more than an empty personal belief system that doesn't do anything publicly for Jesus? Because at the end of the day, it's not what you profess with your mouth about Jesus that validates you as a Christian. It's what your faith in God motivates you to do to bring God glory and to help others to know His goodness that validates and proves whether or not you truly believe in Jesus. Now again, our works, our good works do not merit or earn salvation or the favor of God for anyone. There's no list of religious works that you can do that would make God favorable towards you. God's favor and God's forgiveness are something that was earned by Jesus on our behalf. Our good works do not save us, but our good works are a window through which a lost and dying world sees the goodness of our Savior. In closing, let me ask you this question. If someone were to place you before the court of public opinion and they were to accuse you of being a follower of Jesus, what evidence would they be able to produce to prove their case? What good is your faith? Let's bow together if we could. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said this morning that every person came into this place this morning with faith, but the question is whether or not you came in this morning with a dead faith or a living faith. And if you came in here with a dead, empty, religious belief that Jesus is God and you believe the Bible to be true, but there's no real genuine peace with God in your heart, there's no, there's no real vibrant love for Christ... There's no real desire to reject sin in your life and to pursue righteous choices that glorify God. And probably what you have is just a dead faith. It's a personal belief, but it's not doing anything to change you. But I want to invite you this morning, if you came in here with a dead faith, you can leave it here and you can leave this morning with a living, vibrant, active, saving faith in Jesus Christ. You can live here this morning transformed. The Bible says that when the gospel comes into our life, that we are made to be new creatures. The old is gone and the new has come. And so if you're here this morning and you, you don't have peace with God, you don't, you don't know for certain that you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have religious beliefs, but those religious beliefs aren't really doing anything for you or anybody else, and you want to know how to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to come. We, we're going to sing a song, and you have an opportunity to come down here. You can come see me afterwards, and I'll be glad to set, a, set some time aside with you and talk with you about how you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, but you would say, you know what, I, I know that I have faith in Christ, but I, I ought to say that the evidence would not be very convincing in the court of public opinion. And even though I know that I love Jesus, I need to commit to being a, a fruitful Christian who displays that in the way that I treat other people. 
So maybe you need to come for that or some other reason. Maybe God's placed on your heart to come be a part of Central Park Church. Whatever that is, you come as the Lord speaks to you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for James and for his word. Father, I pray that every person that leaves this place today would leave here today with a living, vibrant, active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, you change our hearts this morning. And you bring the dead to life. And give anyone here who needs to know Jesus as their Savior the courage and the boldness to respond today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?